the SF Music Tech Summit, recorded live by Media One Audiovisual. To learn more about us, visit us online at MediaOneAudio.com. Thanks for joining us. My name is Cecily Mack. I am uh, Rhapsody International's General Counsel. I've been with the company for seven years in various iterations. Originally as Real Networks and then the JV Rhapsody America, and we're currently independent as Rhapsody International. I have the privilege of serving as their general counsel and dealing with all of the interesting licensing issues that come up in our space because we sell both downloads, we also have our streaming service, and radio and everything in between. So um, I've been asked by our hosts today to help moderate this panel. We have a really interesting blend of people from all sides of this industry on our panel today. We've got the sound recording side represented, we have the publishing side represented, we have the distributor, we have the licensor, we have the lawyer who tries to solve the headaches for his various clients. We have domestic, we have international. Um, I'm not quite sure how Brian did it, but everybody seems to be represented here. So without further ado, I'm just going to ask each of the panelists, just take you know, one or two minutes tops, tell us who you are, where you come from, and uh, we'll go from there. And why don't we start actually with Brian. OK, great. Uh, thanks. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. I'm happy to be here this morning. My name is Brian Calhoun. I work for a company called Sound Exchange. Um, actually, real quick, by show of hand, who's familiar with Sound Exchange? That's awesome. <laughs> I'd say three years ago, there weren't that many hands we go up in the air. Uh, but we collect and distribute non-interactive digital performance loyal, uh, royalties to artists and sound recording copyright owners uh, when their recordings are played on. Uh, satellite, internet, and cable radio. Uh, we've grown really significantly. We distributed, um, in 2005, $20 million. Uh, in 2010, we distributed $250 million. So um, it's becoming a really important part of the recorded music industry. Lisa? Uh, my name is Lisa Tiver. I'm the SVP of Business Development at RightsFlow. I joined them towards the end of last year. I'm the West Coast office. Uh, I joined them after 10 years of working in-house managing licensing with labels, publishers, and societies. And RightsFlow basically sources and aggregates publishing data, matches it to the content metadata, obtains licenses, both statutory and custom direct, and then generates and administers uh, the monthly and quarterly reporting obligations, both in the U.S. and growing uh, globally. Thank you. Philippe? Um, my name is Philippe Perrault. I'm coming from Switzerland, so my English may be a bit slower than your ones, <laughs> especially in the morning. Um, I'm legal advisor, <clears throat> and I work for especially photo company, which might be perhaps a bit astonishing here. And um, I'm CEO and founder of Restorm, and we developed a system called Right Clearing, which offers artists a direct opportunity to offer their song to license. Uh, to, on one hand, end consumers and on the same time on business consumers like uh, producers of film, TV, advertisement and online games. And we want to actually make this uh, workflow easier for the people to understand and faster also at the same time. Half of it is online, the other part will be launched very soon. So now the artists can go on and configure and afterwards we open up the second part. It's also connected to Creative Commons. Since I'm Creative Commons representative in Switzerland since a long time, and um, realized that one of the big issues in Creative Commons is how do you get as an artist an opportunity to monetize the Creative Commons licensing? Thank you. 
I'm Dave Costner. I uh, was a musician for many years. I was in a band called Creeper Lagoon and many others. Um, <clears throat> band broke up, went to school, founded IOTA, managed some bands, joined David Shapiro. I'm an attorney now uh, at a firm called Council that my former partner, well, my former boss, now partner, John Blaufarb, and I started. Um, we represent lots of different entities, a lot of artists, a lot of uh, labels, publishers, um, digital music companies. Uh, so we definitely see everything. Um, you know, hopefully see the problems and head them off or, or try to find solutions for moving forward. Great. Thank you. So an, an overarching theme I think that we're going to try to adhere to today is give these panelists an opportunity to talk about where they think we've gone wrong. There are a lot of things about our industry that are broken, and we don't want to sound repetitive or just like the other guy whining about how things are screwed up in our market today. Um, but it would be good to hear from each of them where they think the weak points are um, and how we got to where we are today and where the opportunities lie for our industry to take advantage of the lessons we've hopefully learned and start to make things better for all sides of the industry, starting with the artists, going through the licensing body, ending up at the distributor, and ultimately the consumer. Um, I think it's fair to say that one very hot topic um, in, our, in our space today is the recent uh, MP3 Tunes decision. And what came down quite recently as a surprise to many, um, and really what the licensing and business significance of that is. Um, I was surprised in doing a little bit of preparation for this to hear some of the opinions about the case. Um, and I'd like to just open it up with an initial question. Um, Lisa, you're, you're the closest to uh, you know, that kind of middle ground licensing piece from where I sit. Do you or does Wrightslow have an opinion about that case or what that means for this industry going forward? Does it mean anything? Well, I, I think we found it quite refreshing. Uh, Bring your mic closer for us. Thanks. Uh, I think we were, I think collectively though, the, the industry was largely uh, pleased to know that dedupe or scan and match was something that was possible and that we were not going to be required to uh, all services would not be required to make many, many copies of the same identical file and store it separately in every locker being a, a server issue. Um, on the publishing side, because that's where rights flow is, yep. and similarly to the master side, uh, we're very pleased to see that DMCA Safe Harbor will be applying. Um, and it seems that the onus is now on the rights holder in terms of identifying the illegal use. Mm -hmm. So that means... Uh, Good news, I think, for most of our clients, uh, a collective sigh of relief. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how this is managed going forward. Um, yeah. I think that uh, all those services that have been at the whiteboard trying to work out what their locker service looks like, we're probably going to see a whole avalanche of services coming out in the near-term future. Yep. And what are your... I know you work quite a bit with artists, so you're going to be representing yeah, the Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm not incredibly familiar with this particular case, sure. but, uh, you know... I'm not that psyched about it, just from what I see. I, I'm, I was, I, I'm not. I don't necessarily agree with the labels being up in arms about the um, Amazon cloud service, mm -hmm. but because there's a doctrine of first sale out there somewhere, you know, and licensing are, licenses are not sales. But um, this, and if I understand it correctly, is basically you can store something directly into a cloud after a search, 
Um, and it's really the issue is whether the DMCA safe harbor applied, not whether this is just bad. You know, so I, I totally get the val I mean, the you know, I, I get the point of the safe harbor. I get the point of you don't want to have disruptive technology technology shut down because they could infringe because there can be many non-infringing uses, and that's all great. But from an artist's perspective or from a label's perspective, let's say a small label, not the big evil ones. You know, how the hell are you? How are you supposed to police every single? Service that might be popping, you know, public, or publishing or playing or streaming or selling or, you know, whatever, distributing your wares, whether or not that's the main thrust of their business, whether or not, you know, they're advertising the fact that they get a Britney Spears for free, which was, you know, the downfall of the Napster or, or the, the Kazaa and Grox or all those uh, holdings. But it's sort of like, look, I mean, come on, guys. <laughs> you know, we're musicians. You know, we're laborers. We're trying to sell music here. We're not police. And to make it the uh, onus, and I understand it's a problem for new technologies, but like at some point the, the the ground can't be completely clear. I can see people sharpening their pens, but the ground can't be completely clear for new technologies because well come on, how hard it's gonna be really hard to open a business. And it's like, well what about the artists whose music you're selling? Like well, come on, <laughs> you know, let's make it real here. It's a lot easier for you to police than it is for I mean there is Grace Notes got great fingerprinting technology, you can know if something's infringing, but it's really difficult for me to know, oh, Groove Shark and MP3 tunes and everybody's playing my stuff. I got to spend all day trolling for it. That's a little onerous to me. But. And for the distributor side, I mean, do you think it's an appropriate onus to put on the distributor side? I, I just think at some point people have to do their jobs and actually distribute and market and perform and being policemen to make sure that all of the billions of new websites that are hot using the DMCA safe harbor mm -hmm. <laughs> exception aren't <laughs> taking away your business because they want to have a business. You know, that's my feeling. So what about the Amazon locker service? Anyone? I know that there are some people, I will not name names or companies, but there are definitely some people in our space who were thrilled to see that somebody had the, uh, I'll say, wherewithal to launch something like that without going through all the licensing headaches. Do you guys think that was a good move for the industry, or do you think that that was something that's going to actually harm us in the end? Uh, well, as I understand the, the locker is what's called a dummy locker, and that is everybody's required to upload their own, into, their own files into the locker, and there isn't any sharing going on. Um, I, I don't know that it's a particularly scalable service. I think it was really more a marketing ploy on, on their part to you know, get out there first. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think that this is their long-term business. I think they have many other things planned, which you know, we'll wait and see. And now, after this MP3 litigation, I'm sure they'll be out there very soon. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Brian, do you all at Sound Exchange have thoughts on any of this? Well, not on, that, not on that stuff specifically. You know, we administer the statutory license, so you know, I'm much more uh, uh, open to talk about those kinds of things and those issues. I mean, I will say that. Uh, you know, with all of the licensing issues that come up doing direct licenses, one of the things that has happened is that because this statutory license exists, it gives thousands of services the ability to perform, uh, or I'm sorry, to, uh, to play, program, uh, any commercially re released recording without having to go and do all those direct licenses, which has, you know, given birth to, uh, you know, an entire industry here in the United States. And, you know, for all the problems that people have with the license or maybe with sound exchange uh, specifically, you know, we're the only nation in the world where this can actually happen. It's the only place where Pandora can exist. Mm -hmm. 
And it's interesting that I mean, two of you are here and your companies or your employers exist really because of the compulsory license when you get down to it. Mm -hmm. I know RightsFlow maybe have, might have some broader uh, services as well, but for the most part, I mean, that's a whole flow of revenue and licensing that's happening in this industry without anybody having to actually grant permission. You must think that's a good thing. Um, but then we see a, an interesting trend where there's actually uh, people stepping away and trying to remove themselves from the compulsory license. So do either of you have thoughts on that? I mean, in particular, I think about, um, you know, the, a very obvious example that's recent is EMI withdrawing from ASCAP. Um, and I know there's some things happening on the, on the radio side as well. Um, I'd like to hear what you think. Is that a trend that's just that's going to take us to the next stage of this, or is this, these are just sort of one-off, oddball scenarios? I think that you know, direct licensing, the publishers, certainly the major publishers and key publishers are showing a very strong t trend towards direct licensing. Now, EMI, in withdrawing their EMI April catalog from ASCAP, claimed it wasn't a revenue thing. So I guess we'll just have to wait and find out. They say that they want to have uh, greater control. And in theory, in the digital music space, um, that is certainly very possible. You don't need the middleman. The problem and the complexity with the US and why rights flow exists is there's probably 36,000 publishers in the US. I don't know, give or take a few thousand. Now, if you want to go out and direct license all of those, that's really very uh, challenging. Mm -hmm. So. Um, I think that if you have a very valuable catalog, it makes sense for you to want to do that, and I think that we're just going to see that very strongly in the next few years. And, you know, RightsFlow makes that possible. Uh, we don't advise, you know, clients one way or the other as to what they should do. It is for the licensee and the licensor to work out what path and what strategies are best for them to implement. Um, and I think there's just no stopping. And with public performance, it's not a statutory rate anyway. It's, it's their prerogative to do that if they so care. And I think, uh, sorry... Just to finish that, yeah. I mean, aside from the fact that uh, you have to deal with the identifying their data and achieving the license, there are some benefits, and I speak as somebody who used to be uh, within a service, and having a direct relationship with some of your key publishers, because everybody is looking for that additional thing to do, a marketing thing, a, a download, and often they need to reach out to the publishers to get very instantaneous approval so that they can do this. And if you have a direct relationship and you are paying them direct, you have a relationship and you have more of an ability, in fact, to reach out to the publisher and hopefully get those approvals to try new things. Mm -hmm. yeah, so, can I just follow up on something she said sure. too? Um, I, I think she hit up on something that's a really important point is that you know, there are so many um, individual rights owners and uh, doing direct license, if you're a service, going and doing direct licenses with all of them can certainly be, uh, can really be a challenge. One of the things we like to say at SoundExchange is we're the easy button. You know, you're a service, you know, uh, with a few uh, documents and reports and payments, you can play any commercially released recording. Um, and, but that's not to say that some uh, services and um, and copyright owners, sound recording copyright owners, don't ultimately feel that that's in their best interest, and they do have to make the decision about what's in their uh, their best business interests. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. So, I mean, a lot of this, and I want to come back to this topic in a minute, but it seems like a lot of this is around the the entities with the most power and control are able to be much more selective about what terms are going to govern the distribution of their content or the nature of the services that they're trying to offer to market. And that, we'll come back to that. Um, but this brings me to something I wanted to raise with you, Philippe. And I have to just note, 
I'm impressed that you're participating in a panel like this without English as your first language, because I speak French probably about as well as you speak English, and this would be very tough for me. But I, I know that you have yourself focused on trying to empower the smaller people and, and the artist who is really struggling to make sense of and generate a living in this market. Can you tell us a little bit about how Restorm came to be and what you see is really the future of licensing for people who are trying to be more directly involved in what's happening with their content? As coming from the other side of the ocean, yeah. <laughs> we are very uh, divided into many different countries and every country has its own law. So we don't have a big country like here in the U.S. where you all speak about the same law. Right. And Switzerland in all this is even the smallest of them. So as working as legal advisor, I was really struggling around with uh, almost 25 different law systems. And it was a big problem. It took me almost 10 years to understand how it works. And I had also to give advice to a lot of artists. And of course, they, did, they couldn't absolutely understand what's going on. Because even we as the speci specialists couldn't understand in all less details how it works. And that's probably also the reason I was really impressed by the approach of Creative Commons, breaking it down on some simple points which work globally. But then, as I said, the problem was now how to monetize it. So this finally, probably my background coming from another uh, part of this globe <clears throat> brought me together to, to fit these two puzzle parts together to make it work for the small artists. Right. And what is, <clears throat> what's an artist's experience then if they take advantage of that? Do they, how do they more directly engage with the licensing process? You talk about something that I think you referred to as B2A. What, what, is, what is B2A? Yeah, yeah. B2A was just an invention of myself because I'm coming from the law side and I was really yeah. not happy about this division between B2C and B2B all the time because I was legal advisor of a big deal where we had to travel around in 11 countries in Europe and that every time we had to convince the shareholders of this big company of this deal the director normally was happy about the deal because he would get some money. The lawyer told us, yeah, yeah, good job you did. This contract will work. And then in the end, the marketing guy came and said, no, we cannot do it because it's not B2B and we cannot go for B2C. Mm -hmm. We don't so, have that problem in the United and, States and, at all. <laughs> so then we normally drove home from all these places and we were really making jokes in the sense of it's not about B2B or B2C, it's about to be or not to be. <laughs> and, and this finally drove me to the end to say it's actually about b to A, it's about business to all, and these platforms today make yeah. it possible to go in all directions. I like it. <laughs> and is this something, I mean, is that unique? It's not, it's not a unique concept. It's, it's something that you're, you're evidently successfully launching in Europe, and I, I understand you've had some really positive feedback. It's only a, a, a space for growth. Do we see that at all here in the United States? I mean, you mentioned you've seen some efforts along these lines, but maybe not uh, more seamless uh, licensing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think that there's a number of companies that have come out and 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 I'm going to say tried because I don't know if anyone's nailed it, but 
what does nailed it really mean? But are, who are doing direct licensing where someone who's a music supervisor for a blockbuster or a TV series or a student film or a festival release or something can go online and get music without having to go through the chop shop. Well, I guess they would be a chop shop without going through you know the many publishers or whatever and, and really either direct licensing with a publisher or direct licensing with a writer slash artist um, just to do it easier, you know? Um, I haven't seen it done. Well, I think that it's still evolving. I think it's a great idea. My caveat on that is that we live in a market or everything is a market. And um, as artists are making less money from record sales, they're moving toward licensing, which is a great idea. But the more artists who are open to that, who want to do that, there are a finite number of licensing opportunities out there. So, um, you know, the values for each license are dropping. You know, a a Pepsi commercial or something might pay 100 grand aside uh, 10, 15 years ago, now 25, 30 grand, which is still a lot of money. But um, definitely things have dropped. However... To backtrack again, if you have a lot of these services, you have a lot, the market expands on the demand side. So you have a lot more um, filmmakers and supervisors who can pay, hey, maybe it's 200 bucks, maybe it's 500 bucks, but they can pay the indie artist to get their song or, or end master into the film. So I think that's a great thing. I think that this is the example of what the internet can do to open up the pie um, in a really constructive way and making it easy through... I mean, I feel like a Creative Commons license is just a well-generated form that anyone can make, but if it's seamless and it's easy and it's easy to understand, it can take, you know, the... I mean, lawyers, to get a lawyer to look at a contract is going to take an hour or two of time. It just removes that from the equation, and that's probably better. So Creative Commons, I think it gets a bit of a bad rap, right? You think... Well, no, it's not a bad rap. I, I, in a way, I think it's been... Gr- I think it's been brought to a level just a little more sophisticated than it really is. It's just a, it's a preset license that allows certain things that generally a copyright license wouldn't. But that doesn't mean – I mean, I love uh, Larry Lessig, and, I, you know, it's great. But, it, you know, but it's, it's just, a, it's just a, an easy-to-read contract that allows certain rights. So the chuckles you know? are very telling, right? I mean – is anyone making money with Creative Commons licenses? Larry, Larry Lessig is selling a lot of books. Do you guys know if anybody... <laughs> do you guys know making any money with a Creative Commons license? Or is this just a nice academic exercise being run out of Harvard now that he's decided to leave us here in California? Oh, is that right? Yes. Bummer. Anyone? No. No. Uh-huh. That's a shame. What about you, Philippe? You seem to be very much a champion for it, it's so I'm, in, I'm curious. Uh, in, in, in music, I don't know too many examples. There are one or two, but it's really not the big issue. Uh, on the publisher side of books, there are some very interesting people who published it either on the copyright and Creative Commons at the same time, making the online download for free, but then the real book in the bookstore to buy. And actually, this restriction given by Creative Commons, the non-commercial restriction, that there is no only one platform making it possible to automatically monetize this part was what astonished me that long and the reason why I in the end decided to develop it. Mm -hmm. And coming back to the other point that uh, of course the more people get able to license uh, there will not be the much more movie producers on the same time but one big thing I also saw as a legal advisor is that all the users get themselves now the even more and more producers by themselves, and they don't have some real good opportunity to get licensing uh, licenses. So this, I think, is the place to go in the broad way that the 
all these YouTube uploaders of game, uh, of skate videos or whatever, that they are able to get licenses for, they, for their movie for a, a reasonable price and fast and easy and the way they understand it works. And so where, where are we then on the value of free? I mean, is this just a, a, a never-ending train that's just taking us to less and less revenue flowing into the artists because people are using these free channels as a way to build awareness or generate a buzz, but then at the end of the day, there's no money? I mean, we've seen artists withdraw from some of these free services. We've seen, you know, YouTube, I don't know, are they making money? Do you guys have opinions about free as a good channel? We, we, re we represent Rebecca Black. Uh -huh. And uh, she tell us a little bit about what 170. She just I, I, you know, I don't even know the exact numbers, but well, some of them. 175 million plays of Friday, and astonishingly, aston astonishingly low amount of revenue coming from that to everybody, to to Rebecca or Ark or whoever. So it's it's. I, I'm not exactly sure. I don't think they actually have published how their rates break down, but I don't think people are getting rich on YouTube. But do we, I mean, a lot of people in this room know who Rebecca Black is now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's great. I mean, but that could have been done through a number of means. And, and, and we'll put it this way. She could have exposed a body part on stage. She could have. She could have. How many people are on YouTube? I mean, how many artists are on YouTube? And we know Rebecca Black's name. So that's one out of, like, millions. You know, it's like, it works. You can't use the outlier. To, well, look, I, I'm not, I'm not, I've, I've given up, like, when I, I've given up debating whether, you know, free is good or bad. I'm firmly against it. I think that anyone who monetizes things and who tries to defend a value of anything knows that if you're competing with free, I mean, it's market economics. It's, it's, and eyeballs are great. But you don't see the bottom of the hills attendance ramping up dramatically between 1998 and 2011. You know, the fact is, music has become commoditized and there's a race to the bottom for the value of a master. And unfortunately, the biggest issue is probably going to be streaming, which in a way is a great thing. And in a way, it's an awful thing. But it's a great thing. It exposes music to everybody. And I, I listen to music in my car and Spotify is great. But... You've got to have, well, by the numbers, 70 times more people listening to a stream about than would normally not buy a DPD because now they're streaming it. There's a digital phonographic download from iTunes or whatnot, which is already a 10% of what you'd get from buying an album, which, and we can agree, we can, actually, we can probably agree, hey, look, if you only want a single, you should be able to buy the single. But, yeah, look, it's going to be tough. And, um... It seems like the people who are really benefiting are the tech companies, in a way, uh, because free means... The ones who pay hundreds of millions in advances to the record labels to get the right to stream for free? Well, look, an advance is supposed... Just curious. <laughs> I'm in the business, well, so I want to know. No, I, you know, an advance is a prepayment of royalties, you know, so do they have to pay for what they, what they stream? Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm and people you know, poop on Pandora because Pandora has to pay royalties. It's such a bad business model because it's not all profit. It's like, well, you know, <laughs> yeah. sometimes you have to pay for stuff. Yeah, but now, fundamentally, the services that are using the recordings in order to attract uh, listeners, viewers, or whatever, to, and however it is that they monetize it, I mean, there's a value associated with it. And, you know, the, the creators, both the artistic creators and those who uh, are funding the creation of that work should be compensated for it. And the individuals ultimately have to make the decision about whether they want to, you know, create a, a, you know, a SoundCloud account and let people stream it for free or... Uh, you know, I always encourage people who say, look, do you want to give something away? If you're going to do that, at least get something in exchange for it. 
you know, uh, but you know, there's value associated with it. And when there is, when there are people who are coming to your site or using your service because it is there, then they should be compensated for it. So, so you work with Sound Exchange, Brian, and Sound Exchange is, in some way, affiliated with the RAAA. What happens when a service pays significant advances, and then the service is never able to actually recoup those advances? Well, I can't speak to that specifically. Uh, you, you know, I mean, the the payments that people make to uh, Sound Exchange, uh, you know, they they're either you know they're uh, monthly payments, generally speaking, uh, so they're not really paying these huge advances uh, for that. Uh, and I also like real quickly the the RAAA, you know, Sound Exchange is not the RAAA, but there is absolutely a relationship with the RAAA. We have members on our board of directors, and initially, the RAAA was the organization that ponied up the money to build a really big, powerful complicated royalty accounting system that somebody had to pay for that in the beginning, and they were the ones that did that. So, you know, I don't shy away from our relationship with the RIAA. I know people have their uh, their concerns with them, but at the end of the day, they were the organization that had to do it. But we also spun off from them, and we're an independent nonprofit organization. Yes, they have a voice, but half of our board are represented by artists. The other half are by labels, and not just the RIAA. So... I just like to throw that out there. <laughs> hey, you know, I also want to clarify that. Do, do I think it's right that labels require millions, you know, huge advances for, for services to start? Not, no, I don't necessarily. Um, as long as they're being recouped, I don't think it's crazy. But I think that there has been a, and, you know, maybe that's a topic, there has been a bar set, and it's relatively high. And I have a lot of uh, music service clients who are having a real problem with that, and I have every uh, sympathy for them. It makes a lot, you know, it's, it's ridiculous. The majors aren't everybody, and certainly a lot of aggregators are happy to license their music out to a lot of new services. That said, uh, and it was something we were talking about in, in the green room there, I mean, if you're going to start a retail store on the street, you got to buy product. You know, it doesn't seem you know. And if you if you want to get served by ADA or Red or or Warner Music or any of the distributors, and your office your 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 store happens to be in a back alley in the Tenderloin, you may not get that deal. You know, it's it's not just because it's digital um, doesn't necessarily mean it's. You know, completely friction. I, I'm trying to well, make look, some sort problem, of compa- you know. The problem with you know. that analogy is that if you're opening that little shop and you want right. to sell the items, that every single one is basically the same exact price. But you have to have a certain amount of upfront money to pay for the most desirable right. items. It's inherently disadvantaging all of the small options that no, are available to the consumer. I'm, I'm not pro major label on this, but th- those, if Sounds you want like to. <laughs> no, 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 I'm not. I'm just saying that the content has value. And again, like. I, the majors are just doing anything they can to stuff pockets as soon as they can. And we could talk about what Brian just pointed out to me earlier that is shocking. Uh, it's going back to the escaping the compulsory licensing on uh, master performances. But um, all I'm saying is you've got to buy product. You know, if you're going to start a, a brick-and-mortar store, you'd have to buy CDs or records But can you start a brick-and-mortar store? Can you start a small service today? Can you, can you just decide you're going to offer the most compelling you know, sexy mobile streaming product that's going to be the most personalized and most accessible and international and really make it possible for artists to deliver their content in a compelling way to a customer who's going to pay enough for it to make it worthwhile in the first place. 
can you do that today? Or are we over-favoring these big companies that are now seemingly Well, I mean, first of all, there's a lot of companies out there. So consumers have a ton of choice. This whole, like, oh, we want to open a, something that works. It's like, well, come on. There's so lots we should of just not have stuff. any more No, no, not, not at all. I'm just saying if you're comparing digital to physical, and there is some comparison. It's the same channel. You're listening to the same music. There are startup costs to, to, to physical that, if some reason, I think digital feels like they it's ridiculous that there has to be any startup cost to bringing a service online. But look, I, I'm with you. If 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 the if the advance is somewhat reasonable, you know, look, there are tra- there there are transaction costs. People have to you know the labels have to focus on the deal. You have to deliver the content. It's there. I'm I'm not for exorbitant fees. I'm just also not for this the kind of digital mantra of like, well, it's 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 frictionless, so we should be able to have millions of stores because the audience needs it. And it's like, well, look, the audience has actually gravitated in incredibly large degrees towards certain stores, Rhapsody being one of them. You know, it's another, if you're a label out there looking at declining sales and you've got, you've already laid off, you know, seven of your ten lawyers and and you've got a laundry list of 700 music sites that want to have your content and they all have, oh, it's a new thing, you know, what happens is we email the track and then we we t- the person then foursquares themselves and then we satellite monitor it, okay, and it goes into a pool, okay, and here's where it gets interesting, and, and like all that, and the, the lawyers are like, oh my god, jeez, you know, yeah, they're, they want to set the bar high. They're like, I tell you what, you got a million dollars, you get a deal. You know, and, and is it lazy? Yes. Is it lame? It's lame. Are music listeners suffering? They're not. Are music entrepreneurs suffering? Well, you Are know. Are artists suffering? No! The artists aren't suffering because there's not yet another cheap music portal out there that can stream your music for free or for barely nothing because they got angel funding from some guy. No, I don't think music... I mean, artists are suffering because nobody's buying records at all. Is anyone going to... Much I mean, fewer. Are, are downloads dead? Is this it? Is it over? Well, that's a great question. I want to hear people's thoughts. Downloads dead. We're going to do questions afterwards. Forgive me. Thanks. <laughs> I want to hear them. I want to hear from these guys first. We're going to have at least 10 minutes of questions at the end, so please hold them. Download's dead. I want to hear everybody's well, take on Well, it seems less that. convenient, no, doesn't it? Hold on a second. Con- I want to hear yeah. from these guys. You know... You know, I don't know. I mean, from, from, you know, my personal experience is, you know, that I, you know, I use RDO, I use Spotify, uh, so I, I, you know, Rhapsody. I, you know, I, I've tried all Mog, all streaming, Mog. all streaming. I, I've, I've, I've tried all the, I've, you know, I tried everybody's service, and I definitely find myself downloading less. But when I do download, I generally download directly from an artist website. Um, so I don't know if that's uh, indicative of what the rest of the uh, music-consuming uh, business and, is going to do. And comp accounts aside, do you spend as much money now that you use streaming services as you did when you were a big download junkie? You know, I think I probably spend a little bit less. All right. Uh, Lisa? I, I haven't downloaded for ages, but I do subscribe to Rhapsody amongst other services. Well done. Gold star for Lisa. Thank you. <laughs> Um, and I can say, you know, RightsFlow, you know, we do do a lot of back-end work for digital downloads, and it's, it's an inc- a small part of the business compared to the subscription and other services we see coming up. So do you see the download component declining and the subscription streaming Certainly going not up? increasing. Yeah. Uh, subscription is increasing, yes. And Philippe, what about you? Did you ask about the paid or the free downloads? No. Well, that's a great question. Let's start with the paid. Yeah, I think it's going to happen the same as on the physical paid yeah. uh, I mean, look, if sales. you can stream whatever you want, whenever you want, for a set fee. Or free, actually. Or free. Why would you buy? 
if it can go in your car, well, for the people and if in it can be room, in your home, I buy, I buy, I buy. I also have a Rhapsody We're subscription. like a little bubble, though. <laughs> but I mean, honestly. Not only are we in the Bay Area bubble, but we're also... You know, in San Francisco, and we're at a music conference. So, so we're well dressed, and we're most people in this room have used a streaming service, <laughs> no, right? No, but the, the point the point is that that you know, look at Pandora's numbers on the mobile side; they they skyrocketed. I'm sure Rhapsody, you know, there's apps yeah. that you know, people can now do in their car what they bef- couldn't do before, you know, and that's the last bastion of oh, cool, I want to listen to this in my car, and I grab a CD and I put it in. If you don't need to do that, and you can go to your Spotify, or Rhapsody, or whatever account and listen to whatever you want, you don't need you know, you know, people don't put records on their wall anymore. You don't need the physical. Well, you don't need the permanent ownership or whatever they call. You don't it, read the sleeve anymore. Days. You don't need the sleeve. They don't the have cover a sleeve. Up. It's a matchbook. Yeah. And Philippe, you're about to say something about free. Downloads. Do you think that those are suffering a similar demise, or is that an area that's growing at the expense no. of the paid piece? <laughs> I lament the demise. I, I think it's depending where you are. If the actually, it's depending the cost of the broadband access. Uh-huh. In Europe, it's, there are still countries where it's very expensive, so streaming is not that interesting, especially not mobile, not because of the streaming service itself, but because of the uh, communication costs. But as soon, and I think this will be the future, it will be available anywhere, then it's definitely all this cloud and streaming stuff which is replacing having a physical copy of it. Mm-hmm. All right, and we'll hear from you when we're done. <laughs> Thanks. Um, I, I want to throw something out there um, and see maybe if we could touch on one area that uh, might be controversial and might not, but... Brian, I know that there's uh, there's some undercurrent of an effort to do some direct licensing on the radio side, that people might be opting out of the more traditional aggregated models somewhat along the lines and similar to what EMI has done with their withdrawal from, from ASCAP. Um, can you speak to that yet? Yeah, sure. We, uh, well, you know, I, I touched on it uh, briefly, uh, but like, it's, it's really no secret. I mean, it's certainly it's been out there in the press that uh, SiriusXM have uh, reached out and talk to a number of labels about doing direct licenses with them. And, you know, really, the service and the label has to ultimately make the decision about what they think is in their best interest. For some people, that may be, uh, it may be to use a direct license as opposed to going through us. You know, we like to feel like uh, that sound exchange makes things easy for them, uh, uh, easier for services than going through the direct licenses. You know, we pay artists their share directly. We pay labels their share directly. So they don't necessarily have the same uh, royalty accounting obligations uh, that, they, that they otherwise would have if they did direct licenses. But some some people are, I know, are seriously looking at uh, making some of those. Uh, Casey Ray Hunter, I'm going to call him out. He's here. He wrote a, a really interesting piece uh, on the Future of Music Coalition blog uh, with... Uh, FMC's position on it. Um, but again, it's really people have to make that decision uh, about whether or not they're going to do it themselves. And who, who stands to gain from a shift like that and who is going to really lose for those of us who aren't as aware of it as others? Well, look, there's, there's the potential uh, for labels to, to gain if they feel like 
maybe one of the advantages of doing a direct license would be that they'll get reported to uh, more quickly, uh, or maybe they will get advances. That's uh, that you know obviously came up uh, a few moments ago. Maybe they'll get advances, which is something they don't get through us. Uh, you know, I like to think that one of the disadvantages is that uh, the artists may or may you know may not see the the royalties that they otherwise would would be getting because we do pay the artists their share directly. Uh, you know, and you know we report as quickly and accurately and transparently as possible. Uh, so, you know, I like to think that, again, that we are doing the kind of things to make it easier on both sides. And plus, and plus we're, you know, uh, you know, we're also advocates for, uh, for the artist and label community, which is not necessarily something that uh, uh, you would get if you went direct. Jumping in, something that uh, Brian pointed out to me earlier, and, and this is shocking to me, is on the attorney and artist side um, of things. But... I mean, this is a giant loophole. I'm kind of surprised that Congress didn't really address this. But under the compulsory license scheme that established Sound Exchange, artists get 40, or featured artists get 45% of the money, side artists get 5% through the union, 50% goes to the label, right? right? That's under the compulsory scheme. It sounds fair enough. We like it. We got our checks. People are happy. If you do a voluntary scheme, however, that all goes out the window. Right. So if a label does a deal directly with a, a radio station, a digital radio station, they keep all the money. Now, under your artist deal with the label, maybe you get your artist rate from 12 to maybe 17% of the label's net income, but that's 17% of the net as opposed to 45%, which is what, the, what Congress wanted you to get or wanted the artist to get. So, in, in, in essence, the labels, and I mean, it's genius. They're just like, oh, well, we just won't use sound exchange. And we'll the just artist, charge 55% whatever. of 100% It doesn't rate. even matter. It's already in the deal. Because the, the yeah. artists don't even know. Sound exchange isn't collecting on... No, they're not collecting on behalf of the music service. So sound exchange doesn't even know. The artist doesn't know. Nobody knows that something's played. Only the label does. And the label sends a statement if they... And this is pointed out by Lisa. If they accurately account to you at all. But I'm assuming they will. And there are ways... You know, that's been a battle forever. But... Um, that's a real problem. That's like a write your congressman kind of problem because so, this is not what was supposed to happen. Isn't this one of those rare cases though where the indie artist actually stands to gain? Because the the major major label represented artists are going to end up with this kind of shoddy deal through direct Unless, labels, and then all the indie content that's not going to be governed by a direct deal is going to actually flow through Sound Exchange and ensure uh, that they get beggars, their half. Unless Beggars does a direct deal, unless Merge does a direct deal. So they'll probably let's say top ten indies are aggregators and then the four majors go direct. Everybody else actually is going to be making 50, 100% more. The, the very, very long tail yeah. is going to be... They're not going to be... I guess you're I mean, right. You still find, you'll see that kind of justice. It's aggregate. Right. Is what you're saying? Yeah, but is it aggregate because no, it's because they'll, they'll reduce the, the payment? They'll reduce the yeah, payments that they make to the us. Right. Just so they'll just pay yeah. for what they've used and uh, report to us. Yeah, because the pool will be less, so right. it'll be purport- They won't gain more. Right. They'll still get they the still same. Get less. They'll cherry but they pick won't out the key deals too, because there's a limit to how many direct right. deals you can do. Right. Manage properly. But there's a limit to the number of radio stations that make any money. Yeah. You know, it's a limit to anyone making right. money. But uh, on the publishing side, I would just say I think there's advantages on both sides in terms of doing direct deals. Um, you know, we had the recent DMX ASCAP decision, which enabled people who do direct deals or services that do direct deals to carve out their direct fees from the blanket performance fees that they're paying to, to ASCAP and BMI, although it's not as simplistic as a, as a penny-for-penny uh, carve-out. Uh, and then on the other side, of course, uh, we have the publishers embracing this, and 
you're able to do deals that are more flexible than possibly you could do through a PRO. And I touched on the advantage you get from a direct relationship as well. So I think it cuts both ways on the publishing side. Look, I'm, I'm down. I think that I don't even know what ASCAP or BMI takes as their admin, admin fee. You know, that's a black box situation that nobody really knows. So it could, I, I remember researching for a major client, like, gosh, could we go around them? Can we just go to Clear Channel and license all the music to Clear Channel? This is before, well, you know, before the mm -hmm. digital streaming was such a big deal. And uh, it, it does seem compelling in some ways. The my issue with the master licensing or going around there is you're actually changing the the you're actually changing the percentages that people get in the end. Cutting ASCAP or BMI or CSAC out, it just makes it, you know, cuts out a minimum. So much better. That's not such a big deal. Wow. <laughs> All right. Well, we're down to about 15 minutes. Um, I'm very open to making sure that the rest of the room can uh, bring up topics that they find of interest in this group. So. Um, we'll start with the person who already started. Sure, yeah. I mean, to the point of, uh, you know, is the artist suffering? Up to millions of dollars, technology companies... Just a moment, just a moment. Quick, we're going to have you... So we're going to try and get a mic around, so I'll pass it around as best we can here. Yeah, going back to the is the artist suffering of the millions of dollars that the technology companies have paid out to the labels for advances and rights? Has any of that money like trickled down to the artists at this point, or is it still being held up and for future reporting? If it's been it's played, if the if the if uh, you know, and I agree. I, I mean, if the if the artist's material has been played by the music service and it's been reported, then the record company has to pay the artist, and they're paying the artist from that advance. Now, of course, the 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 Labels got in the catbird seat because they're and you know they're going to keep whatever isn't played and you know the artist has to be popular in order to get some you know decent chunk of that. But I think the real if there's a travesty, the travesty is the labels are setting such a high bar for entry. It's well beyond what's reasonably going to actually be earned by all of their artists on that service during that initial t period. And so. I think you know it's interesting the streaming component of this industry is just a graveyard of services. I mean, totally different batch of services every couple of years, particularly the ad-supported streaming. Um, and you have to wonder what happens to that money. I mean, they've gone out of business because they can't... They keep it. They can't yeah. survive. <laughs> yeah. I mean, where are, the, where are the good plaintiff's lawyers? <laughs> okay. It's not illegal. I'll, this gentleman here, please. You guys keep talking about stream. Mike, please. You guys keep talking about uh, streaming, killing uh, the music downloads and physical CD sales, but I haven't heard you guys discuss anything about uh, bitrate, beatport, and the proliferation of music DJs that need high bitrate uh, files. So what's your, what's your point about that? You, you disagree with the notion that the... Well, I think, I think as far as... <laughs> I think as far as like, the consumer uh, you know, mass thing goes, then yeah, I mean, people are going to want to stream stuff. But at, on the same token, there is a huge section of DJs, especially now that DJ equipment is becoming so uh, cheap and easy to obtain. Mm -hmm. And there's a huge cross-section of DJs that are basically only being care cared to, uh, catered to by Beatport. And uh, these DJs need high-resolution files in order to play them on a big system. If you play uh, a 128-bit MP3 on a big system, people are going to laugh you out of the club. Yeah. But you could buy the CD, yeah. right? Well, yeah, I guess. Yeah, but that, that'd be crazy. That's it. That's also. A, <laughs> you know, it's it's a great it's a great point. This is a this is definitely an area of opportunity in the space because Bport is so default. 
And my household is a big customer at Beatport, actually, because my husband's a DJ, and so we spent a lot of money there. Um, but it's, it's an area that's, I think, still quite niche, and Beatport's done a really great job of serving that market. So it is an opening for competition. Um, I don't think streaming is going to kill the Beatport model. You're right. Let's see. There she was next. Um. I, my name is Brooke Wentz, but I, th I know most of you guys, but um, I used to be music director at ESPN, and when I did, ESPN took the big um, step of doing direct source licensing, and for one of the largest cable networks, it was really quite a, um, uh, an, uh, an interesting step, and I remember going into depositions with ASCAP about that, so it's really interesting for me to see that it's happening on Brian's end and with the Masters. What was interesting, though, was that some publishers did decide to opt out of actually having any of their artists on ESPN. And the ones that did decide to have their music used on ESPN, we had to do the negotiations independently of actually the performing rights. And some of them, it was entirely subjective. So a sync right is subjective. So if a license costs, let's say, 1000 bucks, most of them we might tack on 500 more bucks for, let's say, the performing rights uh, aspect that they would originally get. But I remember one particular publisher, which is double it so it would be uh, or even triple it sometimes just for the performing rights just to screw ESPN as well as to kind of you know put their mark in like this is a subjective price um, I'm, I'm curious to know if you see with the direct source licensing if some of them have actually regular prices or are they being just as, as subjective and saying no you can give us you know I want you to give us three times more just because we're not going to go through Saudi exchange well, I haven't been privy to uh, any of the terms of those deals that they've offered, so I I'm really not sure. But I do understand that uh, there have been a number of labels, and I, I would suspect if you reached out to the some of the label community, you could probably find someone. I, I just haven't seen those, seen those deals. I don't know what they are. Sorry. Got one over there. Um, my name is Marcos, and you know there's a lot of discussion here about um, the artists, and you you know you have these preferred artists that are getting paid more, but I think what's missing from this dialogue is how the technology, the most cutting edge of technology right now, allows for music recommendation to go far beyond what was traditionally decided upon by some curator or some tastemaker. So currently we're using Echo Nest and several other services to really find deep catalog content that matches very popular content side by side. And a lot of our users are coming back to us and going, you introduced me to five new bands today, and it was completely relevant, and it was completely good, and I was so happy. Thank you very much. So as services uh, like Echo Nest open up uh, and allow for deep injection of music that is not normally part of the popular, but completely relevant, you know, I think a lot of these services, or a lot of the licensing, a lot of that model does not uh, support and or take recognition of bringing in these artists that, don't, that aren't normally part of the top 50. So how does, how does the system jigger itself as these technologies allow that entire way of bringing in artists that are normally not important? making them important. Well, I mean, there are a rich bevy of aggregators who really mine, I mean, Orchard, Iota, you know, tons of, of companies that mine more obscure uh, uh, artists, and it's easier to get those into services because they don't require crazy advantage, uh, advances 
for the most part. My my issue though is, and I, I totally agree, and I, I don't, like, I really don't want to feel like a tool of the majors or any. I'm all for innovation, more the merrier is great. And you raise a good point. There are the new the newer crop of of uh, uh, taste. Um, or, or, or recommendation tools are very valuable, but it's what people do after they've been recommended something. Then they go and they stream it for free. You know, they go search it in Google and then they stream it for free. And then they go and sit on the person's Facebook page and stream it for free. And it's like, okay, well, no one ever actually pays. But th th this is not a, oh, there's the bad guy. This is just kind of a fact of life now. But that was, I guess, one of the questions here is, are we getting into that age where Really, people can enjoy music for free because that's what they, I mean, we all sort of set our laws. We're a democracy. Uh, it could be that the Copyright Act has uh, overstayed its welcome. It could be that musicians are happy to put their music up for free for the recognition, for the creative uh, exploration of it all. And music lovers are happy to listen to music for free because they don't feel like it needs to be invested into. And maybe that's okay. I mean, I don't like it. Artists, some artists may not like it, but it's. It's a democracy in a way. It's a market, and it could be that this is going back to the old. Uh, I mean, pledge music is a great example. I know I'm talking a lot. Pledge music is a phenomenal example because <laughs> it's back the I knew way I could it was. Count on you. And I know <laughs> it's bad. You gave me uh, back in the the days of like uh, uh, when people commissioned works from Mozart or Bach. You didn't. The, Mozart didn't write the work. It's like oh, I hope I sell a bunch of records. He was paid, you know, a, a sack full of gold by some courtesan to write the piece so she could play it at her dinner party and and you know be great, you know. And and, and he did it. And great music was made that way. People weren't paying admission to go to the dinner party. They weren't buying CDs afterwards. Mozart did not go on tour. You know, he went to the next courtesan who paid him another sack full of gold and he made another, and that could be the way we go, you know? It's like pledge music. What's that? If money, well, I think it might. Money might start growing. I think that's the new jobs package. But anyway, we'll work on that later. I was just going to add to that, too, that for the large services, they still have to find the publishing. So the more obscure the music, the harder it can be to find the publishing. We spend a lot of time and effort trying to track down publishers. So if you're a big service and you can't find the publisher, you, you know, invariably are probably not going to put that music up because you don't want to get sued. And, you know, it, from the distributor side, there's a... I think you're going to find a ton of support for these types of tools. It, it, it's one of those things that's coming into market in better and better form that's actually benefiting everybody. Because if you make the experience on the service better, people are going to come back and the base is going to grow and more money is going to flow into the licensor. And it's kind of a win-win. Can I just add, too, that there, there's also a misconception that it's the, the big artists only that get paid or the big labels that only get paid. If you are an independent artist and your recording has the exact same number of spins on the exact same number of services for the non-interactive uh, digital uh, streaming services we talk about, you're going to get the exact same amount. You know, I mean, we, we report, uh, our services report to us on almost all of the reports of use that we get are on full census data. So they're telling us every single thing that they've played, which has meant, and we haven't even touched on this, we talked a little bit about it back, uh, in the green room, but the uh, the issues that we have with uh, accurate metadata in order to be able to, you know, facilitate a, uh, a better uh, transaction uh, and uh, less friction, uh, less frictional uh, uh, transaction. But... We're paying the same people for the same spins. You've been very patient. Thank you. Is it on? Yep. Okay. My name is Michael Ashburn. I want to thank everybody for coming down and sharing these very interesting observations about an ever-changing digital landscape. 
Uh, I wanted to talk to Lisa a bit. I mean, we've talked about how downloads, uh, digital downloads, seem to be fading. And of course, uh, on the mechanical side, if someone uh, has a composition that's uh, it, uh, sold for, you know, a, on the digital download, they, they're entitled 9.1 cents. Whether they get it or not is, is another issue. But if that same composition is, is streamed, uh, the rate by, by law is quite a different story. And I was going to ask Lisa what kind of uh, interactive streaming mechanicals she's seeing for some of the clients and catalogs that, that you are working on behalf. Oh, oh. Well, so uh, you're correct. It's a completely different formula. It's a percentage of gross revenue. Um, and, and like anything, we see the same songs get the same, you know, high volume and large amounts of money pushed through to some. And then, you know, we delve a lot into micro pennies for thousands of publishers uh, on the streaming. It's uh, 36,000 publishers with trails from, you know, tens of thousands of dollars down to fractions of pennies for the small guy. It, you know, and it's purely reflective of, of the amount of use. Uh, actually, what kind of use do you have to have to get a big The follow-up question is, what kind of use do you need to have to get up to the bigger numbers? Sure. Uh, you know, we're the guy in the middle between the licensee and the licensor. I, you, know, you probably need to get thousands of, of plays to, to get anything decent, I would guess. You know, we, we just facilitate the reports and the checks. Um, but on the locker thing, I think that the industry, just to throw a comment out, I think the industry is hopeful that we may see um, an increase in downloads with the locker, people engaging in permanent downloads because they have uh, cloud storage. It's something new, and we may see an upsurge in, in downloads with this. So we're down to just two minutes. We've got one more question here. Given everything that you've said about streaming here today, do you find that there's a bigger trend now towards sync licensing on the artist side to make revenues and generate revenues? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think that's the main source of revenue for most of my artists is syncs. You know, uh, the value per sync has dropped, but the use of music in AV media has definitely gone up, and I think that hopefully it will go up further with people being able to legitimately access publishers and artists to, to license their works for smaller uses. Yeah. We have that was a short one. One, one more. more question. <laughs> one minute. Okay. Jack. Yeah. Hi, Deborah. She, she's been anxious. Well, I just want to go back. This is a recurring uh, conversation that we've had a, for a long time. So, Cecily, I know that you, before there was ever a rights flow or any of those, uh, uh, you know, intermediaries, you, for 10 years, Rhapsody has built the most incredible database of music publishers and Adam Parnes and your team has, you know, from the very beginning, um, uh, you know, gone directly to tens of thousands of publishers. Um, so if you're a new service and you, and now there is a uh, rate for on-demand and, and uh, on-demand streams and tethered downloads, um, is there any option? I mean, there still is no central database. You can go to Harry Fox and license what Harry Fox has, but you still have 35,000 other publishers, right? You basically have no choice but to go to a RightsFlow or one of RightsFlow's competitors to be able to actually cover the landscape uh, so that you don't get sued by some individual publisher in Nashville who realizes their mm -hmm. song is not licensed and it's on a Rhapsody or a, mm -hmm. or a Mog or something like that. Is there anybody actually doing what you guys did from the beginning, which is direct licensing thousands of publishers, or do you actually have to go now to a RightsFlow or MRI the or option, whatever? I mean, the option is available, I think, to any service that wants to do it. And needless to say, it took a material investment on the part of Rhapsody to do it. And 
the main reason we did it at the time was because there was not an option. If we were launching today and going through the same process, we would go to Rightslow or to one of the other services and bag this whole idea of doing it ourselves. It was a huge pain, resource suck. It's a never-ending pain. Yeah. I, before, before joining Rightslow, I was at a service and we actually built out our own database and it was a nightmare. It, it just sucked resources. It was an ongoing development issue. And there are, there are tens of new publishers on any given day and yeah. you've got to be on them for street date. It's we're, so we actually are a customer of Rightsflow now. Right. We're, we're taking as much of what our own headache is and offloading it to them. So how does Rightsflow build that database? Do you actually provide Rightsflow with all the 10 years of history of work that you've done to identify those publishers? We give them what they need to provide the service that we are buying from them with very strict restrictions around what they can do with our proprietary data. And I think we can call it a wrap. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>